All right. Welcome to Reverb, everybody. My name is Alex Helberg, and I am here in the studio with my co-producer and co-host, Calvin Pollock. Hey, how's it going, Alex? I'm doing very well. And we are also being joined, uh, making her triumphant return to the mic uh, after a brief hiatus. Uh, we have our friend, colleague, and co-producer, Sophie Wadzak. I'm very happy to be here. So are we. Thanks yeah. for coming. Thank Thanks you for so much for reading us with your presence. I'm sure this is not going to be upsetting for you or me. <laughs> I hope not. Yeah, I've already tortured Calvin with a couple of these so far, and I want to thank you, first and foremost, for rejoining us here in studio because we are here for another installment of Rejoinder, which is a intensely popular series we've it's been doing on the It's a super clever show. name we came up I with. I was going to say the same thing, I think. I don't know if everyone is aware of that, but we've been throwing colons into words <laughs> between the initial syllable re. Yes. Yes. Um, and then we tag a little extra on there after the colon. Right. Yeah. It's it's our attempt to reclaim glory. Mm-hmm. Uh, recolon to, claim. Recolon yes, claim. Recolon exactly. claim glory. Mm-hmm. That we, glow, uh, glow colon re. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> We're finding all sorts of ways to do it. So in addition to evidencing how clever we are in these, what we do for the Rejoinder series or what we have been doing previously is typically I will go out and find some articles out on the internet, articles that have fundamentally flawed foundations, uh, advancing arcane and asinine assumptions, rife with ruthlessly ridiculous reasoning and an edifice of erroneous evidence, perhaps. And I I definitely didn't write that out beforehand, by the way. I'm just riffing. that good at alliteration. Yes, that's what you you get when you're in a rhetoric program is you can just just off to the dome we find these articles that have just really bad hot takes that are dealing with academia with politics with language with things that are kind of generally in reverb's wheelhouse and we roast them we sort of dissect what those arguments are we do a little reading and we try to advance maybe a more affirmative line of you know what a better way to think about these issues uh, might be in other words we offer a rejoinder re-colon joinder re-colon joinder thank Thank you. Thank you, Sophie. So what do you think, guys? Are we ready to dive in? Absolutely. All right. Well, before we dive into the first article, I usually like to start these with a framing question. And so today I will do the very same. My question is, (laughs) should we offer free university education and eliminate $1.6 trillion in student loan debt in this country? This I ask you. That's good. That's a good impression, Thank by you. the way. Yeah, that's a really good impression <laughs> of uh, um, good one, someone from uh, Sesame Street or yes. the Muppets. <laughs> was that? <laughs> was a Jim Henson impression? Yes. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Um, but genuinely, what do you? What do we think about this? Well, I mean, as somebody who has tens of thousands of dollars in student loan debt myself, I would say yes. I mean, I'm in favor sure. of it. On a as, personal level. As someone with no student loan debt, I am also in favor of See, it. See, we're seeing eye to eye despite the there fact we that go. We come, we're coming at this from different sides of the yeah. aisle. But I mean, no, I, I think just, yeah. it just seems to make sense. In this room, to at me. least we have consensus. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah it's well, just. I think I'm probably with you on that one. But the authors that we're going to read from today have a little bit of a different take on the issue. And so we're going to dive oh, into, no. oh boy, here we go again. <laughs> so uh, before we jump in, I just want to give a shout out to our listener, uh, Shaquille Robbie, uh, for the recommendation on this article. Uh, thank you for, uh, and anyone else who's interested, we do have a form submission on our websites. Uh, if you go there, you can submit topics for show ideas. Otherwise, you can reach out to us on Twitter and uh, we'd like to respond to listener feedback. The title of this article is Who Will Take a Pay Cut for Free College? 
And it's by uh, the writer Joseph Epstein, published in the Wall Street Journal. No relation. I, <laughs> no I, relation to okay. any other famous Epsteins out there. I believe okay. me, I checked. Sorry, I just had to ask. <laughs> that's, a, that's okay. It's, it's on all of our minds these days. So, Who Will Take a Pay Cut for Free College by Joseph Epstein. Democratic candidates for president, in their impressive expansiveness, are promising free college. Some limit their proposals to community college, others to state-run schools, and a few, going for broke, want also to forgive student debt for private college tuition. Since no realm of American life has undergone greater inflation in recent decades than in higher education, this is no piddling promise. The cost to taxpayers could be in the trillions, though the prospect would please a nephew of mine who this autumn is sending a son to Dartmouth at the annual price of $76,000. So already author is establishing uh, relatability. Who doesn't have... Who, who doesn't, doesn't have, have a nephew going to Dartmouth? Yeah, who doesn't have that nephew yeah. <laughs> paying $76,000? If government is going to pay for college, at least it ought to try to bring down the cost. I taught at a university for 30 years and have a few suggestions. Start at the top. I would reduce the salaries of university presidents by, say, 90%. Oh my, okay. 90%. <laughs> We're starting, you know. All right, okay. All starting right. big. Starting big. Right. I would also evict them from their rent-free mansions and remove their cadres of servants. Oh my goodness, okay. Which is not something... Do they have cadres I, of servants? I, I didn't realize that. I did not know that that was a thing. I don't know which university presidents I he's talking about. I honestly wouldn't be surprised it, if it, it's no. true. Like, yeah. I don't want to come sure. down on this guy's side, but like, so far I haven't heard anything that I radically disagree with. Yes. I think yeah. that if there are overheads in universities, this is where they are. Yeah. Absolutely, mm -hmm. no. And I actually would agree with you on administration. Yes, administration. Absolutely. Yes. Yep. Get but rid of their now, get though. Rid of what about this? I mean, what does that mean for the cadres of servants that are getting? That's paid? true. That's true. That's something to consider. That's a good point. He he's not making a job creator argument nope, here. He's uh, not. A job destroyer. Argument. Job, a job destroyer, destroyer argument. argument. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Very good point. The contemporary university president, after all, has little or nothing to do with education, but is chiefly occupied with fundraising and public relations. If universities were restaurants, the president would be the maitre d'. To encourage their fundraising skills, talking about university presidents right. here, perhaps they could be paid a small commission on the money they bring into their schools, accepting that on money used to erect more oceos buildings filled with treadmills, computers, and condom machines. Okay, so now we're starting to hear that this guy doesn't like condoms, he doesn't like, <laughs> he doesn't like exercise, yeah. and he doesn't like cool buildings, I and, guess. Or computers. So now That's he's lost yeah. me now he's I, lost I, absolutely up until that point i was relate. like show me the lie yeah, yeah. exactly yeah I, well know, but there it is i agree and that's kind of one of the interesting things about this argument is that you start out with uh, some very i think evidently true statements about the ways that university administered like high level university admins and particularly presidents there is a sort of inequity between you know what they are paid as well as what the rest of the university employees are paid as well as what their responsibilities actually are laying that out and i think what is a very true way but we can start to see a few traces of where the argument might be going uh, from here so the next big cut in the cost of higher education would be in superfluous administrative jobs for the contemporary university is nothing if not vastly overstaffed i want to give you just one or two guesses as to what kinds of administrative jobs this person is thinking about cutting. I'm almost afraid to ask. I mean, I guess who, you know, what he deems to be 
unnecessary is already hr people handling yeah. claims of sexual harassment ding, 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 and ding, ding, like no. diversity ding, ding, issues ding 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 who needs that who needs that yeah in yep. 2019 yes oh, god indeed yep what we exactly. don't need in 2019 precisely yes all those assistant provosts for diversity those associate deans presiding over sensitivity programs those directors for student experience out out with them <laughs> Yes, it does. It it literally repeats out, out with them. (laughs) I'm just doing that in my most Shakespearean uh, 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 dramatic reading. Thank you. I would also suggest dispensing with courses that specialize exclusively in victimology. The history of victim groups told from the point of view of victims. So this is like grievance studies. We're back to Samuel Vessier's grievance studies. (laughs) Yeah, shout out to our previous rejoined, one of our first uh, exceedingly popular rejoinder episodes. Turns out this idea of victimology and grievance studies, uh, it continues to be perpetuated in articles like these. Well, I wonder too, it seems like he's taking sort of a a sort of random piecemeal stab at all these i mean it's one thing to talk about a president's salary and then it's another to talk about cutting certain courses but it doesn't it doesn't really speak to the way in which these decisions are made in real life i mean i don't know if that matters exactly but it just doesn't seem very informed yeah also isn't victimology isn't that like part of the crime like (laughs) crime studies like criminology criminology? and and victimology right yeah it's the studies of victims of crime so he wants he wants to abolish the police that's cool that's great i'm on board again he's won me back (laughs) over i love it i don't know i mean i think i guess i don't know much about what's going on at dartmouth either you know what i mean like how specific (laughs) is his perspective to the to the universities that he's speaking to but i'm i'm with him i'm with him on reducing salaries for for people that are because it's like any big corporation right the people that get paid the most are the people that sit around the most right and then the people that are actually like engaged in the toil don't see any return on that I right feel like that's you know that's one thing to say but i'm afraid about what he's about to say about faculty right. i yeah. don't know what that's I'm assuming he touches on that. Oh yeah. Oh, we will. We will definitely get there after we after we hurdle some other claims that I think we are going to agree with, but I think he's making ironically. Uh. Um, So, but another just a quick note on victimology because that's not uh, he needed to say this last other line about it. Young men and women do not need reinforcement in their already mistaken belief that they are victims because of their skin color, ethnicity, or sexuality. And just to clarify, this author is a white man. Yes. Yes. Mm -hmm. Precisely. So he's the yep. expert on on what people of color need to hear yep. in, a, in an academic setting. Gotcha. Okay, that, cool. checks, that checks out for yeah, me. Yeah. Well, yep. There's some amazing totally. presupposition in that sentence. Like, number one, that they do assume that right. they're victims. Mm-hmm. And number two, that that assumption is mistaken. Or that it's an assumption and not based on <clears throat> lived reality. Yeah. But, um, <laughs> because I, I don't know. I mean, I think is this sort of, I'm assuming this is maybe published in the wake of that New York Times, the 1619 Right, like is this, is oh, this so maybe influenced by that, or how yeah, old is this? Article? I mean, I mean, I would imagine it's it's influenced by a similar cultural force. This okay. this article is actually, I should note, it had it was published on July seventeenth of okay. this year, so it's okay. been out for a while. And in what August Journal? The Wall Street Journal. Oh, the, the Wall Street, Street Journal. The Wall Street. The, the Journal August of Wall Street. Of the journal. Yes. Yep. Exactly. One that is definitely not known for any sort of slant to its mm. editorial viewpoints. Okay. Yeah, I think that's absolutely to the point. Sophie is that. Um, yeah, this is clearly a person who definitely 
knows the minds and the needs of people who experience marginality on different axes mm-hmm. of that and their mistaken sets of beliefs. So just just as a point of information, to what generation does this author belong? Because I think that's relevant when you're talking about reconfiguring a university, right? Absolutely. Like the educational demands of like rising college students. I think it's, I don't know. I'd be interested to know how old this person is because I think that the the needs are perhaps or or just this idea that like older people have like well it was like this when I was doing it so that's how it should be forevermore like doesn't really speak to how things have maybe changed for people in the professional world but I I don't know I'm gonna guess that he's middle aged I'm guessing he's middle aged am I wrong is he younger is he like uh, one of those like young like jerky like. <laughs> He wears a fedora. If only. (laughs) If only. No, no. This. uh, So Joseph Epstein was born in 1937. He is 82 years old. Um, Okay, so there we have it. So I think that needs to... I mean, we should bear that in mind. Right. Or maybe he should bear it in mind. Yeah, exactly. Right? That he might have some historical Without allowing right. it to, you know, be used as an ad hominem sure, sure, sure. thrown yeah. against him. He... But it's a factor when we're talking about what, what does like an 18-year-old college student need? I'm not going to turn to the rich, white, 82-year-old man to find the answer to that question. And, and I think, right. and I think, Sophie, you are actually right to bring that in because Joseph Epstein was also a, I mean, he has been a faculty in universities ah. through a particular time period in sure. universities that's probably very different from today. He, let's see, it says from 1972 to 2002, he was a lecturer in English and writing at Northwestern University and is an emeritus lecturer of English there. Uh, gotcha. I, I think currently, but I don't know if he's actually still serving. So he got his and now he's done. And now right. he's here to tell us yep, what precisely. it needs to be like. And cool. he's also been, let's see, he served as the editor for the American Scholar from 1974 to 1998. Famously was also brought on into a commentary magazine by Norman Podhoritz ah. when he uh, took that on. So that's, wow. yeah, so we've got. So he's got, he's got conservative pedigree. Yes. Yeah. He's definitely pedigree. In case in this. you didn't. In, know case, that you, in <laughs> case you couldn't figure that out from the victimology stuff right. and all the, yeah, the, the just not liking condom machines, uh, right. which is. <laughs> Weird, weird flex, but go off, I guess. Uh, Another place serious money could be saved is college athletics. I've read that the highest paid public employees in most states is the state university football coach. Nick Saban, the football coach at the University of Alabama, earns $8.3 million a year. Mike Krzyzewski, the basketball coach at Duke, earns $7 million a year. The argument for these astonishing figures is that football at Alabama and basketball at Duke more than pay for themselves. The Alabama football program, in scare quotes, as they like to refer to this most brutal of sports, with its postseason games and television fees, brings in nearly $100 million a year. Duke's perpetually winning basketball teams doubtless result in more student applications and alumni donations. I mean, you know, like, yes, those coaches make a lot of money. Mm-hmm. I'm not certain that it's undeserved. I think the bigger problem is that players are under underpaid. Absolutely. Um, and they're, like, potentially destroying their bodies right. for life. Yeah. Also, football is not bad because it's brutal. It's bad because they won't give a job to Colin Kaepernick. That's right. Uh, That's right. It's bad for a bunch of other reasons. And, mm-hmm. Yeah. And they yeah. shut down dis- all dissent. Mm-hmm. Uh, <laughs> yeah. No, good point. <laughs> 
so here we see the author, I'm just giving you a heads up here, is about to stumble into a very brilliant point uh, that I think we're all going to agree on. Under pure capitalism, Messieurs Saban and Krzyzewski, and I am not making that up, he literally put the abbreviation for Messieurs, <laughs> Messieurs Saban and Krzyzewski might be said to earn their pay. But if higher education is to be free, as Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren would have it, we are no longer talking about capitalism. Coaches' salaries could be greatly reduced, and the money earned by college sports, which means chiefly football and basketball, would need to be turned over to the federal government to help pay the cost of education itself. Sounds good to me. Honestly, yeah. same. Yeah. I don't see the problem. I think, I mean, again, this I think is like... Like Trump always wants to talk about like running the government like a business, but that's not really how a government is meant to fun like it's not meant to function on profit, right? And the same with the university, like it's not, and many of them are non-profit, right? Ostens so, ostensibly, like, ostensibly yes. they're non-profit institutions. So yeah, I mean this sort of transaction, like did you earn your salary or not based on how much money you brought in, seems to be like a strange metric to evaluate. You know, if universities are meant to doing what they're what we all understand them or what we think they're supposed to do i guess to be fair like sports programs are major profit-driven enterprises at universities even public state universities but the problem is that i feel like he's setting up a kind of gotcha argument where he's like if yeah. you yeah you socialists if you want to help people with with their tuition and their debt you're gonna have to cut the sports and then people nobody wants will, that yeah. yeah and it's like well, Maybe. Yeah, know, but honestly, yeah. But I mean, yeah, profit sharing, I think, from college sports, actually, it's a not a bad idea. I, <laughs> I, doubt, the, I doubt the players would have a problem with no, it. No, right. absolutely. Not, Especially if they're getting, very much yeah. anyways. Yeah, exactly. Which brings us to the faculty. Uh -oh. Faculty jobs in American universities have risen well in excess of any visible improvement in the quality of university teachers. Now, when he says risen, what does he mean? Does he mean like there are more of them or they've risen in terms of like what? It's unclear in that sentence. It okay. just says faculty jobs in American universities have risen well in excess of any visible. Oh, I think he means the total means number the to of faculty jobs. No, I think he's actually meaning like the extent to which faculty positions are compensated. Okay. So, Is that true? Well, I mean, so we're go we're going to have to bring in a little fact check here. Okay. So he says $200,000 a year or more professorships are now not uncommon. When I began teaching in my mid-30s, an older friend, long resident at the same university, said to me, Welcome to the racket. What he meant is that I would be getting a full-time salary for what was essentially a six-month job, and without ever having to put in an eight-hour day. Oh, Okay. Sorry, sorry, that's <laughs> sorry. I just had a little little compulsory reaction hmm. there. So he's claiming that two hundred thousand dollars a year is like a pretty average and normal run of the mill faculty position that you can assume you'll get if you okay. All right. Yep, mm -hmm. precisely. Sure. Um, and at this point, I think it's also imp it's important to bring in. There's actually an Inside Higher Ed article that responded to this or aggregated some responses from other university professors because this caught a lot of heat uh, when it I originally came out. I'm quoting here from. From Inside Higher Ed. Among other things, Epstein's essay ignores the structural shifts that have occurred since he began teaching. And again, it's important to note that he's basing a lot of this evidence, as many of our authors have done, on personal experience. When he was 
between like the forties? Like when yeah. he okay, yeah. Yep, yep, exactly. Right. Oh, so it sounds like he thinks that his individual snowflake point of view is is <laughs> more and more all. important than raw data and numbers and facts. Yeah, yeah. Interesting. We, we could say that facts don't care about Joseph Epstein's feelings. <laughs> we could. Let's say, we could say that. If we wanted to. If we wanted to. So he ignores the structural shifts that have occurred since he began teaching, most significantly the transition to majority non-tenure track workforce. This means that many professors don't make a salary at all, but are paid on per course basis. But adjuncts say that $3,000 they often get to teach a course vastly undervalues the actual work they do to teach it. Uh, here, to plan here. It. I'm going to say that right now adjunct professor reporting in Speak I would honest. say I mean I just think you know and I would say that at the institution where I'm working I feel very well compensated but I definitely now that I've been adjuncting for a few years and and you know my my family are professors and and you know I'm have some insight into the adjunct racket right it's not all like it's not a walk in the park right and it does take work and you do do a lot of that work for example I am expected to prep for my courses over the summer and I don't get paid for that. I get paid for an estimated 12 hours a week per course and right. I don't get paid until the end of September. But if I've been preparing my class, which starts mid-August, that means a lot of sort of uncompensated un hours. Uncompensated hours. And I don't, yeah. you know, I'm in as much as I think probably every worker should be getting paid more, I feel like I should be getting paid more. I don't think that I'm, you know, paid unfairly relative to other adjuncts. I think I'm in a pretty good spot. But it's certainly not like a cushy, and there's the you know the added factor that it's like semester by semester. So I'm making money now, but I might not be after this episode comes out or you know next semester, right? Like I would not describe it as like a job security right type situation. It's precarious. It's, it's, it's at will in some ways. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And anyone who's worked in a university knows there's like a zillion unpaid, you know, uncompensated hours that mm -hmm. just come up in the course of Definitely. a semester and a school year. So yeah, that's that's just a massive hole in this argument. Yeah. Yes. No, absolutely. So I'm just gonna I'm gonna go on here. So this person also says the racket is that uh, he, I would be getting a full-time salary for what was essentially a six-month job without ever having to put in an eight-hour day which I just have to say is bullshit. Um, that's not that's not true in the slightest. How is it a six-month job? You just totally forget about it and stop doing what you were doing like as soon as summer hits? Right, yep. you just what? don't consider yep. it? I don't yeah, that's not true at all. But also, if you're teaching both semesters, the summer's only like, Three months in yeah, it's more like a nine month yeah, job. So exactly. at least it's a nine exactly. month job. Yeah, at it's the very least. I don't know. Basic math facts, is off there. Yes. Yep. And this also kind of implicates his bias here too. At the Tonier universities, he writes, professors in the humanities and social sciences <clears throat> might teach as few as three or four courses a year. The remainder of their time supposedly devoted to research. Like the man said, a sweet racket. I mean the idea that first of all, just the idea that only teaching four courses a year is is light. Yeah, that's, is a, light that's is a lot of work. Not, right. I mean, yeah. If you're teaching, is that that's like a two and two? That's yeah. A two two is a that's work. Yeah, yeah. Definitely, it is. So that's on its own. That doesn't really make a lot of sense. But also, I mean, doesn't I mean, you guys are both doing a PhD track. How much of your time would you say you spend researching? Right, like proportionally versus teaching. Like it's a lot, right? Yeah. Oh, it's a it's a it's a ton. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. And there's a ton of pressure to constantly be thinking about your research and, mm -hmm. and narrating your research. Well, I think again. that's true too for any kind of work that's academic or you know writing and and 
reading and creating content and researching, right? You don't clock in and then clock out. Like you were saying, Calvin, you're not done. Like you're thinking about it all the time and you're, you know, getting emails from students at 11 p.m. on a Sunday and and different things that aren't, I, I don't know. I feel like the nature of the work and I don't know if we were talking about this before, but you know, before you write something on a page, how much time did you spend thinking about it before you actually put pen to paper or fingers to keys or whatever? Like the, a right. lot of that is invisible yes. because it's happening in your brain, but it's academic. So of course it's, that's all part of it. Like that has to be part of it. Yeah. So this is eliding a lot of the actual kind of like intellectual labor that goes in behind this. I mean, Epstein is, I think, very clearly at this point coming from a very sort of what might we call such a an orientation to your your labor has to have like very explicit outputs in order for it's a very sort of uh, harshly economistic sense of like what counts as work particularly and you know what produces value and what that value looks like transactional Transactional. and strange coming from a writer Right, I mean, right. someone, from, someone <laughs> so, from English, yeah, yeah. So it yeah. seems kind of dismissive. Seems of Seems to be a fair amount of self hate, right? Yeah, yeah. it does yeah. seem like that. Although, yeah. I mean, buddy, you didn't get published as much as you could have, and we're all sorry for that. Mm-hmm. But don't bring the rest of us <laughs> down with you. Well, it also seems strange to say that the thing that you've made your career of is really not that hard. Yeah, like it's not really. Oh, yeah, for, in terms of like. Yeah, you pathos, right? Done <laughs> like, more with it. Maybe. I'm, not, I'm not feeling very sympathetic to you right now. I'm not. Yeah. I, I don't know. You're trying to tell me like, yeah, I made a bunch of money doing something super easy. What's it? I, I don't know. It just seems like a weird tech. Yeah. No, it absolutely is. And it, and it's, it, it's really critical to note that this person is speaking from a very narrow perspective. This person was faculty at Northwestern, which is an elite private university. Maybe he did have kind of a racket going there, but that is not the lived reality or the lived experience for most other people working in higher ed in this country but he continues to write under free higher education perhaps it would make sense to pay university teachers by the hour with raises in the wage awarded by seniority surely they could not complain after all the two most common comments some would say the two biggest lies about university teaching are quote i learn so much from my students and quote it's so inspiring i'd do it for nothing A strict hourly wage for teachers, as free university education may require, would nicely test the validity of that second proposition. Last sentence of the article. Free higher education. What a splendid ring it has. Sufficient tintinabulation to cause one to forget the old axiom that you get what you pay for. So this is almost like my least favorite type of argument. Like, I, you know, it's hard to, like, apply strict moral evaluations to like styles of arguing i think that that's like a a recurring problem in our field is like models like public sphere theory and pragma dialectics and stuff like that like what do you apply how do you say when someone is acting in bad faith or you know when something is irrational rationality varies in, in by by context but like this to me like it's clear that he's set this up in a very dishonest way to say that free higher ed is bad because it would require all of these other things that Mm -hmm. you know you don't want. So therefore, he's kind of coercing audiences into taking his position on a kind of mountain of lies about what the policy would actually look like and how it it would affect universities. I think that's true. And it's also, I think, kind of an argument that I think I'm hearing a lot leading up to, you know, the next presidential election. Yes. 
just the idea that like oh well, we can't change it because we'd have to we'd have to change a bunch of stuff yeah which that's is like yeah <laughs> right, that's yeah. kind of the that's point right like works. we want yes, i mean exactly that's, you know like oh no 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 no, that would we'd have to we'd have to change it <laughs> nobody wants that like i yeah we'd have to I, have conversations about what we actually right. want and what we prioritize and we can't have that no 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 no, no we, we wouldn't want to do just that stay the same and certainly that's not what we're being paid to do as people who've been elected or people who are in higher up positions who get to make those decisions really like that's no, we're paid kinda, to keep things the way they are. Right, maintain the status quo. Isn't that what you wanted? It just seems kind of a strange assumption to like have people get on board with. Like, well, we can't change it because we'd have to change other stuff too. And of course you don't want to do that, so let's let's stop talking about it right now. Yeah, we just don't want to do all that work. That just right. feels like so much work. Well, uh, again, it's this, like, that would yeah, be, and, it, and the argument is that it would be too much work for us. Yes, exactly. And that that's really where I wanted to kind of come down on this article in a big way is that this is assuming that all of the costs for a program like this are, like, it's not even factoring into this, which is weird because a lot of the other articles criticizing these policies have been, oh, it's going to be uh, a big tax on the middle class. Epstein doesn't really mention that at all in no. here and just kind of assumes that all of the costs for this are going to come out of the budgets of higher ed, which like there's a chance that, you know, this could do something to the cost of higher ed or that, you know, that the overall like admissions rates might change and things like that. But at the same time, I think it's a real stretch to assume that all of this cost is strictly going to come from people in universities and not, for example, as Bernie Sanders has pitched, uh, taxes on Wall Street transactions right. <laughs> that actually have been studied by, by economists to be like a kind of a sound fiscal policy that could raise this money handily. On within, its own. Yes, And then exactly. universities will stay the way they are, but they'll just be funded differently. Right. Which seems a little sloppy. I mean, in as much as he's so he's trying to critique like the whole higher education institution. And it seems like, he well, what do I remember about college? Uh, my humanities classes that I didn't like. Uh, football was a big deal. And uh, the president <laughs> makes a lot of money. Like it doesn't seem like a very holistic view of the whole the no. whole institution. Right. No, so it's not like it doesn't seem very or just seems kind of sloppy, which I think is in keeping with the picture he paints of himself is like, well, this is a racket yeah. and I just, I don't really work very hard at it and I'm just going to toss off this article and it's going to be whatever. But like, it's this very like cynical, as I was trying to say before, like almost coercive argumentation style where he's like, he's like assuming, okay, you all are trying to do this free college, college debt cancellation policy, but you're not thinking about how good you have it oh, in yeah, higher that's ed. Right. And actually, you have it pretty good. And I'm going to convince you that you're not doing good work, that yeah. the work you're doing is overpaid anyways, right. and you're actually super lazy, you're not doing anything, and so you better not like demand change, or that change is going to actually end up hurting you and making you do more work mm -hmm. and account for it more. And all of that is is just is just premised on these like cynical assumptions about the work that people are doing in universities. Absolutely, and it's an intensely conservative bias, right? Like that that is just it it coheres uh, or it resonates very much, I think, with a, a strain of thought that is very common in new right conservatism these days, which is sort of anti-intellectual. Yeah, that is Very skeptical of higher education as an institution, in large part because it's critical of the status quo and the way that things currently are, and that, you know, that there are portions of academia that are looking to change that status quo. Mm -hmm. And um, as you said before, too, it seems like very much centered on his own perspective. So yes. as he, as a member of faculty, 
was lazy and felt like he had a sweet cushy deal where he got overpaid I guess good for you but it just seems like he's sort of projecting that experience on every single person working in academia or the university at large and I feel like it's a pretty narrow and maybe not maybe not so accurate <laughs> and you have to wonder about the yes. material interests that are putting him in this position to play this role mm -hmm. to be this like hey i was there i was a university professor for all these years and i can tell you from my experience mm -hmm. this is what it's like you know he's kind of a mark he's kind of a dupe <laughs> yeah. for a bunch of people who don't want to have to pay their fair share in taxes yep there you have it all right. Well, I think we roasted that duck pretty well. We roasted him. Yes. All right. All right. So we can move on to the next uh, the next article here. This one is called "No, Your Student Loan Should Not Be Forgiven" Aww. by Mary Claire Amse Amselim. Sorry, I hate it already. I know, right? <laughs> and there is. I, I should also note there's literally a period at the end of the heading here. Okay. So no, it's very no, very declarative. Period. I'd uh, like to know how many of yeah. these authors had to take out student loans. <laughs> To begin with, That's because a good I feel like question. So, who is this author again? What's so, her Mar name? Mary Claire Ams Amselem. I don't know if I'm pronouncing that right. It's A M S E L E M. I didn't do a ton of background research on this particular. And where was this author, published? But this was published in an online publication called Human Events. Just for some context, Human Events okay. is Sounds a scary. Uh, <laughs> yes, yeah. So, Human Events is uh, edited by two people who you may or may not be familiar with. One is uh, Will Chamberlain who is a sort of... Wilt Chamberlain? No, no, not the basketball player. Oh. Uh, Will Chamberlain, who well, is a... This one might be anti-sports, too. He might... <laughs> Just bitter against old, old Wilt for <laughs> taking his Just namesake. Taking his name, yeah. No, Will Chamberlain is uh, described... I have... Uh, uh, he's archived pretty extensively in uh, rightwingwatch.org. Will Chamberlain, a new right figure and organizer of the MAGA Meetups Happy Hour series. Oh, okay. um, yeah, he's part of this sort of cadre of what he wants to call like moderate Trumpists. So he's trying to find uh, some common ground between people who are for Donald Trump, but also for things for like things. sound fiscal policy. Yes. And, yeah, exactly. And, yep. uh, yeah, exactly. So an impossible, an impossible task that he's been put up with. Yeah, that's so uh, hard. And the other, the other editor, uh, if you are extremely Brave. If you are extremely, <laughs> extremely brave, to yep. just honor the yep. <laughs> respect. <laughs> uh, the troops. Respect. Uh, the other editor, if you are extremely online as we are, you may know uh, Ian Miles Chong. Oh, <laughs> do you know Ian Miles Chong? I don't. Sophie? Should I? I feel yeah. Like so, I do should. you want to give us a little rundown on what you know about this guy? He's Calvin? kind of a gamergate adjacent, okay. like Twitter personality who led a lot of targeted harassment against female game developers oh. and. Just, Sounds like a great guy. Yeah, yeah great guy. Pretty awesome. Yeah, I'll go check it out. Yep, uh, made made a hop over to uh, the Daily Caller for a while. Uh, that was where he was getting his bylines in, and now he's the managing editor for Human Events. So anyway, that's just to give some context okay. on who the venue this is published in. Oh, oh, one piece of biographical information that's included in uh, Mary Claire's byline is Mary Claire Amsalem is a policy analyst in the Center for Education Policy at Drumroll, please. <laughs> The Heritage Foundation. Uh, there we go. Woo! Cool. All right, so we get a little bit of a little bit of an idea of where this might be going. Gotcha. Yeah. Sure, we can expect a fair and unbiased take. Fair and balanced. Gotcha. That's right. Uh, <clears throat> Pro-human. 
Very pro-human take. <laughs> yes, exactly. Well, they're pro-human pro-events. Pro-human pro-events. They like events to happen, yeah. generally. That involve uh, humans. Yeah, exactly. I do, too. Yeah, yeah me too. So. Yeah, exactly. It begins. Senators Bernie Sanders of Vermont and Elizabeth Warren of Massachusetts, thank you for clarifying where they're from, are making <laughs> headlines with their plans to forgive student loan debt and making public colleges tuition free. I like how Bernie and Warren are like Saddam Hussein and <laughs> yeah. Osama bin Osama Laden. Bin <laughs> for, for conservatives now like, like it's yeah true. yeah yeah it's yeah so it's funny. true uh yeah they, say the name that's why they said in the top of the article right to like get yes. everybody on board like yeah. we're gonna hate this yeah. that's actually a really good point that's probably, yeah. yeah that's 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 a way of hooking in your mm-hmm. your intended audience while many agree removing financial responsibility on the part of the student is bad policy what? The 45 million Americans holding student loans undoubtedly see debt forgiveness as attractive. So that statement obviously has some eh, some spurious <laughs> assumptions going on that the sort of many agree line that's uh, invoking this imaginary uh, consensus. consensus of people who agree that quote, removing financial responsibility on the part of the student is bad policy, which is just a really loaded phrase. Also just bad writing. (laughs) Yeah, it's not very easy to parse that, but... Exactly. Burdensome student loan debt is indeed problematic. Studies show it has discouraged desirable economic activity, such as starting a business or buying a home. How but- many nominalizations <laughs> are we at right now? I feel like I this know. is like one every other word. Yeah, Sorry. exactly. But I also just love that the that the value in that statement is placed on that is desirable economic activity. Desirable like who is this person? Activity. Who's who desiring this it? Speaking for? Yeah, yeah, and who's yeah. desiring it's it? Just I mean, generally desired. We the know. economy desires. Hires it. (laughs) Pledge your fealty to your economy. But loan forgiveness will cause more problems than it solves. Both Warren and Sanders propose to pay for their plans by raising taxes. Why should American taxpayers have to pay off loans that students took on voluntarily? As if students are not also taxpayers. Yes, exactly. Just as an aside. Yep, yep. Very crucial yeah. point. Uh, yep, precisely. Uh, dissociation there. Right. Little little promo in old Rick's Titeca yeah. dissociation. There you go. Yeah, we'll plug that in the uh, in the show notes here. Well, I think it's like a, a thing that you know, if they're trying to get people to see students as freeloaders, despite the fact that they're the ones taking on all the debt, never including students in this sort of group of taxpayers, which they very much are, doesn't seem very honest. Nope. No, nope. I would a totally smart agree. Strategy. Mm-hmm. If you want to fragment the population. Yep. And it's something that is definitely, it's going along with that same kind of conservative, what seems to be kind of a conservative bias that Epstein was indicating there too. Lazy, freeloading, that's mm-hmm. the them category. Definitely not the faculty member who felt like he had a cushy job and didn't have to work. Precisely. Yep. Yeah. Nothing. Totally different yep, situation. Yep. He's totally in the clear. Yep. <laughs> yeah. We love to see it. Two thirds of Americans do not hold bachelor's degrees. Their choice not to go to college, whatever the reasons may be, in many cases may have involved a desire to avoid the high cost of higher education. These Americans are statistically less likely to earn as much as Americans who do hold bachelor's degrees. It is regressive, or taking a larger percentage from low-income earners, to ask Americans who purposely avoided the high cost of college to pay for students who chose to take on mountains of debt. Okay, here I have another question because he's assuming that the people with degrees are not the low earners but in my lived experience that is not the case or just the idea that you're sort of 
I, I, anybody who just like wants to divide up the working class as they see fit, right? Like, well, there's the people who went to college and then there's the people that don't make a lot of money and then there's the people who have debt. And the, I mean, as well, I think just the idea that an 18 year old person is really in a position to choose. I mean, how many people go to college because they like randomly on their own decided like, I think I'll go to college. Like that is a choice that is made by a lot of there are a lot of factors that go into that choice, yeah, right? Like, like absolutely. family, social group, right? Your and you're community. told, right? Like, you have to go to college. You have, like, to, right. if you have to go to college. So, like, the idea that like you're compelled to go to college, basically, it, you know, not, maybe not for everybody, but like, or at least from my lived experience, right? Like, my parents are professors. It was never. I never dreamed that I wouldn't go to college. Like, that was like, yes, of course, I'm going to college, and I guess so. Yeah, I also am taking on tens of thousand dollars of debt because I ha- like. You're, it's a pretty strong message, or at least from my vantage point, like you have to go to college if you want to like do anything. So you are compelled to do it, but then it's like, oh, oh, you chose to go to college. Oh, well, la di da. Yeah, yep. Good for you. You thought you could take all this money out, and I don't think that's a very fair characterization either. Yeah, I think Mary Claire Anselm here is trying to basically pit the people who made the smart decision mm-hmm. of not going to college right. against the people who made the dumb decision of going to college. Of going to college. And that, you know, if you made that decision, you should mm-hmm. face the consequences. But also I wanted to point out that, like, again, we're getting assumptions about how this policy is going right. to work because there's the assumption, again, that, like, low earners will be <laughs> subsidizing people who went to college. But yes. no, we're going to tax Wall Street. Yes. Right. We're going to tax right. the, the 1%. <laughs> like, this is not going to come out of, there's going to be progressive taxation and there's going to be, like, targeted taxes at wall street speculation at least you know if you want to trace this to like the boogie people of elizabeth warren and bernie sanders Mm -hmm. like that is what their policies are calling for well so i think i i sort of take umbrage right at this implication that the smart decision was not to go to college right right? like after everything i've heard in the past like you know 30 odd years about what college would mean for me right now to be told by marie claire here like what you what an idiot you wanted to go to college like who do you think you are it's like kind of hard to swallow yeah it seems like people not wanting to deal with like the structural problems in the economy that are preventing college graduates from getting jobs precisely yeah no exactly it's this kind of weird double bind where it's sort of like if you don't go to college you have you know you're told that you have zero job prospects Mm -hmm. and that's Mm -hmm. you know something that like your economic mobility i think is greatly constrained by that Mm -hmm. but it's also increasingly a reality that going to college does not guarantee you a great job i mean those can both be true and the reason for that i think is much more nuanced and (laughs) requires getting rid of a lot of the assumptions that these authors are not willing to part with about, for example, the way that society is currently structured, the way that capitalism works in general. And, you know, whether or not you went to college, you still are paying taxes. Yes. Like, we're all paying taxes. So that idea that, like, there's taxpayers and they're somehow separate from this other group of people who went to college is, like, so flimsy yep, Man- completely bogus. Yep, yeah. completely bogus and also as we mentioned i think it's important to again underscore a lie that's right. saying right. that this is based on that's based on regressive taxation policies targeting low-income earners that is not the policies false. Mm-hmm. that's not patently the policy false. Yeah. 
so this there's a heading here that just says loan forgiveness rewards fiscal irresponsibility here we go senator sanders proposes eliminating all 1.6 trillion dollars in student debt regardless <laughs> of student need sorry, <clears throat> sorry i had something in my throat there yeah uh, many students decided to take a frugal path through higher education which should be encouraged perhaps they decided to go to a less expensive school and took a part-time job if loan forgiveness becomes universal students who made those smart financial decisions ensuring they pay their loan payments on time <laughs> will be given the same benefit as students who went to the most expensive university and have defaulted on their loan payments every month why would any student going forward decide to go the responsible route and why work knowing taxpayers will pick up the tab okay two things there one <laughs> is that so again i'm speaking from my personal experience but i went to a state school i had at least two part-time jobs all through college and i have been paying my student loans and i'm still tens of thousands of dollars in debt so the idea again i think is antiquated that like a part the idea that a part-time job would mitigate tuition is like so laughable that i can't even really give it any time like and it's that's, based on it's, no data either. it's based, no, on, it's no based data. on no data except for the assumptions of who is probably the primary audience here which is people who either out of a personal unwillingness to want to learn more about what reality is like for people who go to college these days are relying primarily on their own experiences like the joseph epsteins who probably went to college at a time when it was affordable to do if you just had a part-time job right yeah. i mean the idea that like the only reason anybody's in debt is because they're being irresponsible is again it just doesn't reflect reality because like the the interest that is charged on loans is like criminal i would say and it makes it impossible like it doesn't matter how responsible you're being the the debt you have is like crippling you know and, and people you know i feel like i see tweets all the time like oh this is the amount of debt i had when i left college this is how much i've paid back now i mean even more debt despite having paid you know so 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 much money but the other thing is there i think this point right that like oh well if i was responsible and i went to like a shitty school i guess and worked and i got my debt forgiven but then somebody who went to an expensive school and didn't work also got their debt forgiven and you don't want that person who went to the bad school like that idea again that's like cultivating this division division among people who are in the same yeah, I want my debt forgiven, I want your debt forgiven, and I want your debt forgiven, and I don't yeah. care if you, you know, maybe I'll be a little salty that, like, well, I couldn't go to, you know, wherever it was because I couldn't afford it for other reasons, but, like, if we're all getting our debt canceled, I'm cool with that. They want to maintain this, like, hyper-competitive, spiteful mm -hmm. society right. yeah. where we, don't, where we exactly. don't have universal things. Like, right. we don't have just a basic value of like let's take care of everyone a no, universal basic that. outcome yeah we can't it has to be that. like i yeah. take care of myself right. and i get rewarded for that mm -hmm. and other people get punished for not taking care yeah. of themselves or the idea that i would want like oh the only way that i can absolve myself of sixty thousand dollars of debt is if somebody else doesn't like oh i was on board but then that guy's gonna get his debt no way. Like, yeah. I'd rather hold on to my debt than see his debt absolved. Like, it's how? super cruel. It's incredibly well, cruel. I don't read, get I mean, but that's like, that's what wealth does to people's minds, right? Like, have you, there's like, I, I don't know if this is like on a tangent, but like research shows that like the more wealthy you are, the less able you are to empathize with other humans, right? Mm. And so if you become very wealthy, you like, I guess, or we're, we're always wealthy, right? You don't understand that like people have empathy for one another and like <laughs> right. want to see other <laughs> yeah. people succeed. Like the, right. that, that idea that's like, 
or we're assuming that like that's definitely not what we want is we don't want other we don't want each other like just me i'm the only one and if i could somehow just get my debt lifted that would be cool but like my neighbor getting his debt lifted <laughs> no thank you like that just seems crazy that that is supposed to persuade me that it's a bad idea i also i also think there's like a very cynical and it comes back to like dividing up the working class mm-hmm. like there's a very cynical move here that's very common in conservative rhetoric especially contemporary conservative rhetoric where you say your enemy is not the one percent or the largest corporations or the loan companies credit companies it's people who went to the elites right who, who went to like slightly good, higher good universities yeah. who might become freeloaders thanks to this policy right when it's like no you like you work for the Heritage Foundation. The people yeah. who are bankrolling this article are way more responsible for the misery of that person working multiple mm-hmm. part-time jobs, going to a state school, than someone who goes to Harvard and has a bunch of debt from going to Harvard. Yeah. Like, you know, there may be really important class distinctions based on what university you go to, and like we shouldn't minimize those. But you know, at a certain point, the ninety-nine percent has to band together and stop letting this kind of cynical rhetoric divide us Mm -hmm. because if you have debt that means you couldn't afford it so that's what i yeah and if you can't afford solidarity right like if you couldn't afford it then you couldn't afford it and neither could i and if everybody's debt is canceled then we're all doesn't that does that not level the playing field somewhat (laughs) somewhat perhaps maybe i don't know but like i don't know just the idea that yeah again like your enemy is the person next to you and not the person who's making it so that college costs or the loan companies that are like yeah oh yeah that i just pay hundreds of dollars to every right like yeah yep exactly and we're definitely oh yeah that's going to be important to remember the distinction between public and private loans here too i have a couple more quick hits from this article jumping off from that you know why would you even work if you know that the taxpayers will pick up the tab not to mention the millions of members of the military who receive tuition-free college as a benefit earned for serving our country this benefit would be rendered useless if it is granted to everyone I'm just going to go out on a limb and say that's a good thing to not coerce people to right. go uh, fight in unjust wars that they don't believe the in anymore. For, right. Yeah, exactly. Or yeah. also that sort of assumption, right? Like to serve your country, you need to be in the military. And that's the only way to serve yeah, your country. Yeah, that's the only way to serve like, your country. Yep, exactly. I would argue that all, you know, there are many ways to serve one's country that don't involve enlisting in the military. But it is, I mean, like that, it's like, I'm sure it's a whole other conversation. But like the way people get tricked into selling their lives to be able to go to college. Yeah, and potentially dying, you right, know, yeah. and, and going and killing people and having to come back and deal with, like, mental health and, like, issues and things. And, like, years Absolutely. and years with, like, PTSD and just, like, having terrible lives all because they couldn't afford college. Yeah. No, that's coercion if, if I've it ever is. heard it. Yeah. Yeah, and what does it say about both the higher education system and how, like, difficult it has become for people to actually enter it and come out the other end with like job opportunities and financial stability, both that and the larger military project of the U S military that like we've created this link between, you know, university tuition and military service. Like it Mm -hmm. seems to me that both of these are kind of bad deals for people. Right. And we were trying to like cleave them together to make them more marketable. Uh, And maybe that tells us that like we need to reform in both. Right. I don't know. Well, again, it's that argument like, well, then the then it wouldn't be a benefit. And we, of course, still want that to be the benefit, right? Like, assuming that we, like, want it to stay the way 
just any assumption that we like want to keep things exactly the way they are does not really resonate with, with reality. me personally yeah. and with reality like yeah. i don't know you had to read the room a little bit right like people aren't exactly like clamoring for why well, can't more of this like nobody's saying <laughs> that like nobody wants it to be like i i don't know people are are gathering in the streets and it's not like such as for love fun. It the way it yeah. is. Yeah, like, the way things not, are. Yeah, yep, yeah exactly. <laughs> oh, more of the same. Yeah. <laughs> I'm having a lot of fun envisioning that uh, that street protest <laughs> <Yeah>. now. <laughs> All right, just one last quick, uh, I'm skipping over a lot of stuff in the article here, but uh, one last quick thing uh, that I think it's important to note. At the end of this article, this uh, this author writes, federal student loans, now we're talking about publicly subsidized student loans, offer colleges and universities excessive funds that enable them, the universities, to raise their tuition without fear of losing customers. Instead, Americans should be holding colleges and universities accountable by tightening the purse strings coming from Washington. So wait, are the customers in that sentence the students? The customers in that sense are, in, yes, I okay. believe that's, per, okay. yeah, yeah, uh, potential students. So essentially, the author here is arguing that the solution or one potential solution to this is to stop offering federal or public student loans or greatly reduce them because that is what is driving up the cost of higher ed and the cost of university tuition under this author's assumption. Because the fact that there are all these federally subsidized loans, universities think they can get away with raising their tuition rates. So you could just write anything these days, really. You can yeah. just say anything. And yep, you can just say anything. <laughs> just... Well, and not have to mention the role that private loan <laughs> companies right. that, right. like, you know, the play in that too. It's great. Well, and the fact, again, like, like we've been talking about repeatedly throughout this conversation, like the fact that like generations and generations of people have been told, like, you have to get a college yeah. education. Mm -hmm. Like we all did it because right. we were told, we were raised, like, this Here we is are. the goal. Yeah. Um, and the economy basically created this bubble itself. It's not like universities just kind of decided we want to take more and more students. No, there was like a structural demand in the economy. And now we're at a point where college education is kind of like high school. Like it's just a yeah. bare minimum like educational expectation. Right. Yeah. It's ex assumed. But at the same time, we're greedy. Like... <laughs> unnecessary uh, you know, institutions like, in society yeah, yeah that, exactly. we, that we like made that the foolish and greedy choice to go to college the right. very thing that we've been raised to definitely expect of ourselves but also definitely finance ourselves but also like it just it's like it's so much i mean i think i don't know i mean i feel like it's hard to sort of do talk about generational argument but like it's a lot like it costs so much more to go to college now than it used to yeah. yep. but yeah, definitely right. the higher ups are from a you know a previous a lot of the time uh, from a previous generation that 100% expect you to have gone to college and don't get why you're complaining about how expensive it is because they haven't bothered to look into how much it costs an individual person but then also probably don't need to because they already a did it and probably have the money Right, they're not in debt. So like it's fine it's fine to say like, oh yes, you should do A, B, C, D, and E and not complain about any of it, but do all right. of it. But like it's just it's a lot. It's a lot of expectation. Absolutely. To me. And I and I think that I'm I'm glad that you that you that you keep bringing us to that because I do think that you can make that argument about generational experience without verging into ad hominem yeah. because you or ageism or, or, ageism or anything right. like that because 
a lot of the assumptions that are being made in a lot of these articles, you literally have to lack a certain amount of like intellectual curiosity right. to learn about other people's lived experiences to be able to make the kinds of assumptions that are being made in these articles. About or even to just cost. look carefully at the data. Oh, yeah. Right. yeah that's year the over thing. year, like, the, the, the increase in yeah. cost, yeah. the increase in numbers. like And the minimum wage not increasing at the same right. time. The depletion so, like, of job opportunities when you get out. like Yeah. Yeah, the job opportunities once you get out, but also like how far is that part-time job that we're all supposed to be having taking you yeah. when like college is like four times as expensive with the minimum wage is the same. To say like, nothing of like living expenses where you're going. Right, yes. exactly, yep, exactly. Absolutely. It's just, and yeah, that's the thing. Like it's not really like you're old so you don't know what you're talking about, but like you're old and you don't know what you're talking about. Like <laughs> right. it's, right. which, and it's not that you couldn't, it's not hard to find out. Right. No. Yep. So maybe nope. you could it's do a little research. There. Yep. I listen mean, listen to Reverb. And let's yeah. remember good old Bernard is uh, 79 years old and exactly. he seems True. to get it. He gets it. So it's not a barrier to understanding. No. You just have to listen. Yeah. So the article ends. Eliminating federal student loans will encourage colleges to step up their game, lower their prices, and maybe even begin teaching marketable skills. Oh, my goodness. I know. Okay. Ooh, just oh, dripping with spite there. <laughs> Loan forgiveness doubles down on the face federal policies that led to the 1.6 trillion dollars in student loan <laughs> crisis and that's the it's end. a stellar impression what I federal think policies like yeah, which what which ones are they talking about oh i'm like, sorry that that was something that i did actually gloss over so they talk about the public service loan forgiveness program particularly so pslf which discharges the loans of public sector employees after 10 years of government employment uh, so right now that's one of the major federal loan forgiveness programs that exists that's out there right now but of so course this, this person is, is claiming saying, a causal connection between that and the increase in debt because yeah, because she says up further up in the article that this program alone will cost 24 billion dollars over the next 10 years okay so the people who worked for the government but not in the military who served their country but not in a military <laughs> role we don't want to help right. them don't that's help right. them that's but right definitely keep the benefit of Free tuition if you are in the military because that is serving your country in a way that we approve of. Like it doesn't yeah, really. Right. No, it doesn't track. It doesn't track. Absolutely. And it's, yeah, there's and a lot of And you have to work 10 years in order to get it forgiven and you have to incur the debt and be paying for it for the 10 years before it's forgiven. Exactly. And not to bring it back to the military, but like if we're complaining about a $24 billion program, Ooh. like we cut a year of war in Iraq probably cover that oh yeah easy. i think a lot um, of these easily. arguments really capitalize on the fact that like once a number's big enough it's like you know what i mean like 24 billion that's a lot yep. six trillion wow that's a lot like i i think that like you just like handily just like rattle off a big number and like oh that's too much or whatever and like if you were to sort of like contextualize, contextualize it, it yeah. you would yeah like it's a drop in the bucket compared to other things that we seem to have Endless no money being. for. Right. Yes. No problem yep. being that, for no, all that No one stuff. ever questions how we're going to pay for it. <laughs> um, those are the policies you should be paying attention to. When people say, how are we going to pay for things like this, uh, that it's unreasonable to expect that, just literally literally look up some numbers for how much the global war on terror has cost this country over the, what is it now, uh, 18 years. 18 years yeah. that we've been involved long, in that, at time. least not involving any other military ventures in the Middle East before that. Yeah, you and go ahead and tell me that that's uh, not feasible to pay for something like this. Right. Well, just that, yeah, that assumption that like we're cool with paying for these things, but we're not cool for paying for these things that is made before the article even gets 
And, and it's so silly and like strange, like education. Yeah. What? Why would we want to pay for that? No, no, no. Well, like, yeah, you don't need that. And especially if it educates students in victimology and grievance yeah, studies right. and Ooh. makes turns them all into little babies. Yeah. Yeah. Do not want to teach these kids criminology. <laughs> they'll become cops no, and we quit. should be abolishing the police. That's yeah. right. That's right. That's exactly so it all right. comes back around. There we go. There we go. All right. Well, that is everything that I have for you. Thank you for enduring that uh, that that torture. Uh, any any parting thoughts on this on this topic from our from our panelists? I mean, I think, yeah, like a lot of these are just sort of sunk as soon as you do a light Google search of how much anything costs. And I think on the Internet, right, people really bank on the fact that you're not going to do that, even though it's easier than ever to do. Like, I'm not going to look up that number and I'm not going to fact check that. I'm just going to take it. You know what I mean? Like we're in our well, it's. Yeah, you're reading the articles that you like to read. Like, yep. this isn't for yep. anybody that might disagree, so they, they're not going to fact check it because they like it, and they're going to rattle it off on some, like, silly Facebook post that's going to get a bunch of, like, I, I, I don't know, positive reacts or whatever. <laughs> but it just is, like, it really, I think, speaks to the fact that, like, these days, and maybe always, but for me it seems especially these days, like, facts are really not a part of of you know the sphere of debate like that's really like sort of an afterthought and something that maybe will come back around later but it's not and necessary no, and there's no responsibility that anybody feels to to have evidence for a claim that they are making particularly in these highly charged political discussions or when they're writing in these media that have a very certain ideological slant to them or they're writing from places like the Heritage Foundation which of course probably wants to lie on a presumption of you know being apolitical or impartial or whatever but like has very clear material interests in funding certain know, kinds of funding certain kinds of perspectives that would play to those material interests yeah and i think like i would underscore everything you both just said about facts but i think that as well like on the axis of morality it's not hard to defeat these arguments Mm-mm. both of these authors are just incredibly cynical and want to punish people mm-hmm. for life relegate them to poverty and misery mm-hmm. i don't want that yeah, yeah. <laughs> neither do i neither do i shocking that yeah. people wouldn't want that yep yep it is it is pretty amazing so in in conclusion we're we're pro-human we're pro-events we're We're not pro-human events uh at least not after reading this article publish publish Uh better takes uh do better and then maybe we'll be pro but yeah just (laughs) don't be cruel support politicians never listen to any epstein yes don't listen yeah yeah yeah. none of them have epstein you can just turn none of them have good ideas oh boy uh Oh man, we're gonna get a we're gonna get contacted gonna by get by an Epstein who listens to this podcast and just like One you don't know how page. life how hard life has been for me for the last two months. One of the best Epstein's, and we're like, oh, yeah, we're exactly. so sorry. Ah, Please shoot, keep listening. About, Please keep listening, Epstein's uh, all over the world, except for uh, you know who you are. Yeah, you know who you are. You shouldn't yep, be listening. Exactly. Yep. All right, that about does it for us at Reverb. Thank you very much, everybody. We'll see you next time. Okay, see you. Thanks. Bye. Bye. Our show today was produced by Alex Helberg, Calvin Pollock, and Sophie Wadzak, with editing work by Alex and Calvin. Reverb's co-producers at large are Caitlin Rossi, Sophie Wadzak, and Ryan Mitchell. Our graphic design manager is Kari Van Nortwick, and our social media manager is Lizzie Donaldson. You can subscribe to Reverb and leave us a review on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Android, or wherever you listen to podcasts. 
check out our website at www.reverbcast.com. You can also like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter, where our handle is at ReverbCast. That's R-E-V-E-R-B underscore C-A-S-T. Thanks for tuning in.